The title of today's message is Walk Worthy, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And I have a small confession to make. When I was younger, I was probably just about the most gullible person you would ever want to meet. I pretty much believed everything everybody said at face value. I didn't want to believe that people would ever uh, lie or, or stretch the truth or anything like that. But as I've gotten older, and probably after a very long career as a paramedic, I learned to become a bit skeptical of most things. Now, being a skeptic isn't the same as being a cynic. A cynic is somebody who just wants everything to be bad. They just want to revel in somebody else um, failing at something or being wrong or just have that little bit of uh, schadenfreude of, of taking joy in someone else's um, demise. Being a skeptic just simply means you just want to see the evidence of what is true and whether or not it is true. So I encourage you, don't be a cynic. But it is okay to be a skeptic, particularly in today's culture, because it's very difficult when we're talking about the media to decide what is actually true anymore. Now, I spent my teenage years as a child of the 80s. I was really into hair band music, some heavy metal. One of the songs that came out in the late 80s was a song by a group called Poison. And I know that most of the older people are like, that's a really good name for a heavy metal band. Poison, because that's, that's kind of what it is. But um, they had a song called Something to Believe In. And that song lists just a whole bunch of, of different things that caused them to stop believing in truth, stop believing in the church, stop believing in, in, in famous people because they had failed them and, and it just rocked them to their core. We've even seen this in the church. In our lifetime, anybody here over the age of 45 or so probably remembers the televangelist scandals of the early 80s, the fall of the moral majority, um, some even in the 90s where they just seemed to be falling left and right in scandal. And it came to ruined because it was discovered that they were not following the message that they preached. And unfortunately for many, and especially in our culture, it destroyed their faith in the ministry or the church and even the gospel message. It's very true that even the most cynical and skeptical among us need something to believe in. Whether they admit it or not, they need that kind of bedrock and foundation. And that's why when you find something or someone that's the real deal, it's so refreshing. I want to share something that taught me the difference when it comes to our faith. Many of you have heard me talk about a man named Peter Chung. If you don't remember who he is, he's a missionary to North Korea, to China, um, to Afghanistan, Pakistan, pretty much anywhere where you can lose your head for being a Christian, he goes and plants churches there. So he is um, very active in the underground church and uh, was heavily supported by our first church. And he was visiting the USA when I was pretty new in the faith. I didn't, haven't even been a Christian a year yet. And he was doing a short-term itineration to help raise money for a special project for the underground church in China. And my pastor, who was kind of mentoring me along in the faith, recommended that I go and hang out with him on my next day off. 
just to kind of observe him, to talk to him, to, to be ministered to by him and, and be encouraged by him. Because if you want to talk about an intense Christian, Peter is an intense Christian. He still is. Very, very intense guy. Totally sold out for the gospel. So I set up an appointment with him and Peter. We're going to go hang out and go out to lunch on a Wednesday afternoon. And I got there a few minutes early, checked in at the office, expecting them to be at the office. And the secretary told me, well, they're down in the, in the uh, visitor's room. Now, the church that we originally got saved in was the building was so big that we actually could build like a small apartment in a couple of the rooms inside the building that had its own private bathroom. And we'd use it for guest speakers and missionaries. They have an apartment to, to stay in right in the church. And so I walked down there. And as I walked and got closer to the room, this is, again, big building. As I got closer to the room, I hear this, like, wailing and crying out and, and, and just, just strange noises as it echoed through the building. And I got to the door of the room, and the door was cracked a little bit, and I saw both Pastor Claire, who was my pastor at the time, and Peter laying face down on the carpet, and Peter was just loudly praying and wailing out to God, which I was assuming he was praying in Mandarin Chinese. It's kind of what it sounded like. And Pastor Claire was praying in, in English and praying in tongues. And... I found out later that the reason that they had gone to prayer and why Peter was so emotional was that the church, he just found out that the Chinese Communist Party had just raided his church and they shot the pastor in the head as he was preaching. And so one of the people that he, he raised up and trained to be a pastor was shot dead in front of his congregation for, for having a church. And Peter was praying for that church with such intensity that he literally sweat through his shirt, sweat through his pants. When he, when he got up later, there's literally a stain on the carpet from where he had sweat so much. And the only way I can describe the feeling that was in that room was just the weighty presence of God. I don't know if you've ever been in a service or you've ever been in a prayer room where you have that weight weighty feeling of God. And I remember, I didn't know what it was. I was a brand new Christian. I just felt I should be on my knees and I should be praying. I don't know what I'm going to pray for, but I'm going to be on my knees because it was just that weight of God was in that room. Probably about 90 minutes later, Peter, was, Peter stood up, stopped praying and stood up. And he said in his broken English that he felt that God has released him now that his prayer time was over, and he was hungry, and we can go to lunch now. And he said, I got to get cleaned up. I got to put on a new shirt, and, you know, just guys in the room. So he, stripped his, he just stripped his shirt off, and you could see on his back where he had been, it was just covered in scars for where he had received the lash from the Chinese for, and beatings and, and different things like that for preaching the gospel. He got caught in North Korea and he had burns up and down his back for where they tortured him. And I found out during that lunchtime that during, at the time, which was a 25-year ministry, it's now a 55-year ministry, that he had spent at that time almost 10 years in prison in the worst 
excuse the phrase, just hell holes of prisons that you could ever find. He had spent time there. And I didn't realize it then, but I was looking at a man that carried the very same exact spirit as the Apostle Paul. And I want you to think about that as we open up today's message. We're going to hear about a man and his heart who, like Peter Chung, set up underground churches throughout all of um, uh, Eastern Asia and Europe. A person who had been imprisoned, a person himself who had been beaten, a person himself who had been scourged, killed and even revived for the sake of the gospel. And we should remember that when we listen to his words, because Paul is the real deal. And Paul is speaking to us from the city of Rome around 60 AD. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that you take this message. Help it to change our perspective about the time we live in. Help us to reorient our thinking to the gospel way. And help it to just set our, our feet on the path that you would have us walk in this day. Not a path that fills us with fear or trepidation, but a path to where we see the person standing at the end of it. It is you, Jesus, with open arms, ready to welcome us home. Lord God, I thank you and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, in the beginning of the message, I made a little bit of a contrast between evangelists who had fallen because they weren't practicing what they're preaching and a man who suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. Paul is in that latter group. Because Paul paid the price. Paul bore the marks. And I want you to think about this. His words and his witness carried so much weight that they still influence the Western world today. Much of Western culture, whether they want to admit it or not, is based on the thoughts of the New Testament and the thoughts of this man. Even in a post-Christian society, we still have a lot of his thinking in our, in our collective consciousness, if you will. Let's look at Paul's credentials. He said, as a prisoner for the Lord. And this was not just a poetic saying or some allusion to his spiritual dedication to Christ. For Paul, it was quite literal. When he wrote these words, he was under arrest in Rome. You can read about his journey there in Acts 20, chapters 22 through 28. He was arrested by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem on trumped-up charges. 
He had several trials before Governors Felix Festus and King Agrippa. When he saw he was going to get railroaded into these false charges, he appeals to Caesar. So they send him to Rome for trial. During that time he was in Rome, two to three years, he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. But he got at least to stay in a home instead of a prison until his trial was complete. You say, well, he must have been taken out, right? I mean, he, he couldn't have done much chained to a Roman soldier. I mean, maybe that was just, you know, the devil's way of trying to get him out of the field. Well, Paul used his time wisely. He wrote this book from that, prison, from that jail situation. He also wrote Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. They're all called the prison epistles. And again, chained 24-7. To probably a very hard, a very callous, and a very unfriendly guard. But still, he was able to write four of the books that we call the New Testament. What a contrast to most people today, right? I mean, most of us, if we have a headache on Sunday morning, we're going to want to sleep in and miss church. Maybe the Packers are playing an early game, or Pastor John preaches too long. We're not going to come to church. One of the biggest things that irritates me in the age that we live in, even raising kids um, when my kids were young, is that children's sports, guess when they're going to have them? Sunday morning. Think that's a think that's just a coincidence or a, maybe it was something about the kingdom of darkness in that. But when you look back at the first century church, and particularly its leadership, you see a very different mindset, don't we? And especially in Paul. I mentioned a moment ago that he wrote this letter chained to a guard in probably not a very uncomfortable or very comfortable situation for him. And the reason that Paul could still perform his duties in ministry is this fact, that Paul viewed himself as a prisoner for Jesus long before they slapped those physical chains on him. Paul was a prisoner of Jesus' grace and forgiveness. You have to remember how he got his start in life and ministry. He was essentially dogged a bounty hunter for Christians. Except he just didn't deliver them to jail and get paid some money. Often the people he brought into custody were at the very least scourged. If you don't know what scourge is, that's whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails that had glass and bone and everything else embedded in that leather. So it not only cut, but it grabbed and ripped skin off the back. 39 lashes are what they would get. That's if they were lucky, because usually heretics were sent to a cross. One day, on the day of his conversion to Christianity, Paul was doing exactly that. He was going to try to find Christians in the city of Damascus. And that's when Paul met Jesus. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 9. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, another name for Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, 
they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Paul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You know, some people are so set in their ways, so absolutely convinced that what they are doing is the right thing, even though it's wrong, that they need to get knocked off their high horse. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Paul needed to have these eyes that were so focused on everyone else's sin, everyone else's failures, everyone else's failures to follow the 613 laws of Judaism that he never allowed that gaze to turn inward to his own heart. Paul needed to see how deep his sin ran. So he could see the perfection of Jesus. That's why I believe he was blinded physically for three days. So all he had to look into was his own darkness in his soul. And you know what? This can have a personal application for you and me. Sometimes you and I need to get knocked off our high horse. Sometimes we need to turn our eyes of pride and judgment inward and see the spiritual wreck that we've become. Sometimes God needs to strike our vision to see the sins of others so we can look inside and see the depth of our own sin. Some days we need to realize the words of the hymn, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. That's me. If it wasn't for grace, if it wasn't for the blood of Christ, I would have no hope. And allow, I, we need to allow that realization to shape our thinking, shape our wants, shape our desires toward, what, toward pleasing the one who gave it all for us. And that's what Paul did. The chains that bound his heart to Jesus were forged in the love and the gratitude for the one that forgave his sin, even up to and including signing the death warrant for the people who are following Jesus. But Jesus still forgave him. Because of the chains that bound his heart to Christ, the chains that bound him to a soldier did not feel so heavy. They did not feel so uncomfortable. Because he wasn't focused on the physical He was focused on his spirit. This is how we begin to live a life worthy of he who has brought us out of darkness and into his wondrous light, into his freedom, into his strength, into his joy. So let's look at some of the practical ways that we can live a worthy life. Paul tells us, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's take those one at a time. Paul said, be completely humble. A few years before we moved up here, my wife and I were playing a game online together. We met a guy from Australia. 
Well, it just so happened that he had business to do in Milwaukee, so he was going to fly in and we'd get, you know, to see somebody from across the world. And so we drove up to Mitchell Field and we said, well, we'll just give you a ride to the hotel, save you a taxi fare, and, and get to meet him. And as we sat there at the gate and we're watching, we had a really old picture of him that really wasn't clear, so we really didn't have any idea what he looked like. But we watched a guy walking up the walkway, we said, that's him. That guy's from Australia. He said, well, what was he wearing, like alligator skin boots and a big black hat? Saying, hey, let's go put some shrimp on the bobby, mate. I mean, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. He was dressed more or less, just slightly different than an American. But you could just tell his posture, the way he was walking, looking around. He wasn't from around here. And most of us can pick things like that out. We can see things that obviously don't belong. Well, you know something else that people can generally spot humil or, uh, immediately? False humility. Fake people. I don't know about you, but I can spot them pretty darn fast. People who accomplish something and then make sure everybody else sees it and says, oh, shucks, it was nothing. But really, they're just trying to dig for more compliments. You know, men, we do this sometimes, especially if you're married. Our wives are out with friends or running the kids around, and, and we get bored, and we do the dishes and, and do some vacuuming, and our wife comes home, and she's like, wow, honey, you're the greatest husband ever. And you're like, yeah, just keep telling me. Just keep telling me. I'm the greatest husband ever. I know. I know. Ladies, you do the same thing by dressing up fancy and then asking how you look, right? We all do this in, in some way or another. We all, we all try to get that kind of validation from the people in our lives. However, biblical humility is a little bit different. Biblical humility is grounded in the character of God. Think about that for a moment. To save us from our sin, God emptied himself completely. The Bible is very clear about that, particularly in the book of Hebrews. I could try to explain this further using my own words, but the Bible does a better job. In another letter of Paul, he describes the idea of godly humility in great detail in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to slightly paraphrase that. Humility is doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considering others better than yourselves. Each one of you should not should, or excuse me, each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's look at some of those highlights. He says, do nothing out of ambition or conceit. In other words... We don't do things only to make ourselves feel or look good. 
Instead, our focus, like Paul's, should be to do the things that make Jesus feel good and look good. My pastor wrote, my former pastor wrote a series of books, um, kind of not in opposition, but in answer to The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. And Rick Warren's um, whole thing is trying to make a church that the sinner feels comfortable in so they could get to know Jesus. My pastor's opinion was we need to make a church that Jesus feels comfort, comfortable in and comfortable to visit. And that, that had a, a great deal of impact on me when I was preparing for, for the ministry in the Assemblies of God to think about that. I want a church where Jesus is comfortable. We, of course, want the sinner. We, of course, want the new believer. We, of course, want the senior saint. We want an entire body of Christ here. But the most important thing is that Jesus be comfortable in, our, in the atmosphere of our church. And we do that by considering others before ourselves. Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. Even before the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Everything in his humanity was screaming at his divinity that he needed to find another way. You remember Jesus asked and begged the Father, can you take this cup away from me? This cup of suffering that's coming, that, that cross, can you take this away, Father? It caused so much anxiety that he sweated blood. It's an actual medical condition. Maybe, just maybe, we need the Holy Spirit to scream at our stubborn human spirits to do as our Savior did. To pick up our cross and follow Him. Not just walk behind Him, but follow His teachings to us so that we can model them to the world. And that also should be shown in how we consider others. And I know this doesn't affect everyone, particularly if you're a little older, but it's important for many of us. How you represent yourself online is just as how important to how you represent yourself in person. I put a joke out on my Facebook a few weeks ago. I said, social media proves that a lot of people have never been punched in the mouth for saying something to some, like we used to when we said something bad to someone's face. But we never had a, a negative consequence for just talking trash about people like people do on social media. Now I'm not suggesting we go punch people. I'm just making a point with that. When we take stands on doubtful things, especially unproven and frankly some crazy ideas being perpetuated by people with political axes to grind, it destroys any influence we may have to show them the gospel someday. If you, don't, if you take notes today, take this one. I call this Oscar's Law of Social Media. Oscar's Law of Social Media says, the number of people ever influenced to change their mind via an argument on social media will forever remain at zero. Particularly if you're trying to sway them into the right. So why ruin a relationship online arguing about earthly opinions that have no eternal significance? 
So just remember that when you want to argue about doubtful things, in the end, your opinion is not going to matter in eternity. Only God's opinion is going to matter. And God's opinion of that person you're arguing with is he was just as precious as you were, and Jesus came to save them too. So why ruin your chance to speak into their life to win a political argument? I mentioned this during Sunday school. Like we shouldn't be quick and willing to wreck witness and ruin friendships to win arguments that are unwinnable because it's getting to the point now in our society that truth isn't something you're going to argue people into. It just isn't. You will never argue a person into the faith. It has to be spiritually discerned. So instead of arguing with people online, and I know how tempting it is. Look, I, I, I sometimes hover my mouse over the top when somebody says something crazy, and I want to argue it. I do. I understand. It's hard. But I remember what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Instead of doing that, we use God's mighty weapons not mere worldly weapons, to knock down the devil's strongholds. With these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. With these weapons, we conquer their rebellious ideas, and we teach them to obey Christ. And what was that weapon? Prayer. We have lost the impetus and... and and the knowledge and the realization that our prayers are powerful in the spiritual realm. We need to get that back. And I'm preaching just as much at me as I am you. So now what I've tried to do, instead of posting something, pray about it. Instead of arguing with people, Pray about it. Instead of being stubborn and rude, something that would, that would probably get you slapped or punched if you were face to face, pray. Instead of ruining relationships over something that won't matter a year from now, a month from now, or much less a million years from now in eternity, pray. If you do that, then you will be seen as humble as gentle, as patient, and able to bear one another in love. And then you will reflect Jesus to everyone you see. Finally, there is an admonition that is placed here especially for the church. And that is to be unified. The unity that is shown in the Godhead. Verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all. I want you to look at that scripture. Seven different times, Paul uses the word one. He says one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. 
That is unity in the faith. Realizing that as a church body, there is much more that is in common with us than separates us. Understanding that we might have our own ideas, our own desires, our own preferences, our own needs, even our own football teams. I still pray for all you guys who support the Vikings. But when we come together, we are one people because our God is one God. And we want to be like him so that we can walk worthy of him. Amen? Let's rise. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you take these words that we have read today and that you apply them deep in our hearts, Lord. Father, help us to be about the work of the kingdom as our first priority every morning. Help us to remember to pray. Help us to remember to love. Help us to remember to connect and stay connected with you every moment of every day so that we can make a difference in this world for you and walk worthy of the calling that you have given each and every one of us. Father God, I thank you. I ask your blessing to be upon your people. Use them this week to bring somebody closer to Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming today.